Our participation trophies coddling our youth are these pointless plastic keepsakes ruining our children's hopes of ever knowing what it truly means to be a winner. We get to the bottom of whether this really is the big problem it's made out to be. Then we turn to Harvard, where a coalition of more than 100 faculty members have formed a council to promote free speech and academic freedom on campus. Will this trigger other colleges to promote free expression? We speak with one Harvard professor and the university's newly formed Council on Academic Freedom to find out. Finally, we'll tackle a $20 billion industry. No, we're not talking about the global music industry or the meat substitutes market. We're talking about death. Even when it's all said and done, why is dying so expensive? We crunch the numbers. All of this on today's episode of The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hey everyone, I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, a couple announcements on the front end here. We have a few episodes of Sweat the Technique I want to point our listeners to. This is our podcast that's by a bunch of former educators who talk about how to just take the lessons learned from the K-12 system uh, and apply them to life. Last week's episode was one of my favorites. We talked to a woman named Christine Choi, who was the former head of Virgin Galactic Communications and also a founding member of Teach for America. And she talks about all about how you build a brand, whether for your company or for you as a person. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking to a lot of experts on parenting. Uh, you know, basically, we went down the list of all the best parenting books out there. And over the next few months and weeks, we're going to be talking to a lot of those folks. Uh, you can also check out our newsletter on education called Imbroglio. This week, I departed a little bit from sort of nuts and bolts K-12 practices and talked about a passion of mine, which is lifelong learning. And I talk about how over the past uh, five years, each year, I've picked a new hobby or skill to do to learn. And I talk about going through that process and why I suggest it for anybody who's kind of going through life trying to master new skills and, and pick up new hobbies. So check that out at Embrolio on Substack. We'll also put that in the show notes. But Ricky, shall we encourage more voicemails? Yes, we actually had an international one, which we will address later, which I thought was kind of cool. But um, give us a call 321-200-0570 and share your thoughts. Well, Ricky, let's talk about participation trophies. Well, the days of coddling America's kids could be over. Three Republican senators in North Carolina introducing a bill that would ban participation trophies for children in sporting events. You know, when, when kids are growing up, you know, they're now they're being taught it's okay to just be okay. You don't have to be the best. I hold my grade seven cross country participation medal uh, in, in great esteem. This is the greatest achievement I've ever done. You make it sound like it's a felony to give. <laughs> Uh, a seven-year-old a trophy. Why are you such a Grinch about this? I want kids to improve. And I want kids to be engaged in the process of improving. And if they get a trophy, they won't want to improve? Why would they? Well, Ravi, I am certainly a Grinch on this one, but um, we're responding to a Wall Street Journal op-ed by Jason Gay, who wrote about how this is essentially a false moral panic. So what's your take here? You know, it's funny, as I was thinking about this, I realized that in my many, many, many years of youth sports, I played basically every sport my entire life, uh, my entire childhood, I'd never won a championship in any of those sports. So um, I, there were some individual sports I did where I won some stuff, but never as a team. And then I thought back, 
well, I do have a bunch of trophies. So I don't even know what those mm. things say. I was just back in my my childhood room the other day, and I'm like, what the hell are all those trophies? They must be participation trophies. You know, so let's talk about this. Uh, three Republican state senators from North Carolina introduced a bill to ban participation trophies in youth sports. So this is now hitting the legislatures. Uh, according to Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Gay, the participation trophy debate is really not about children or sports, but a means for the recreationally outrage to score points in culture wars. He wrote a great piece about this. And he argues that the real problem with youth sports teams is that participation is down uh, and that the numbers have been dropping for a while, both pre and post pandemic. The percentage of children aged 6 to 12 who regularly played a team sport dropped from 45% in 2008 to 37% in 2021. Before we get to that data, though, let's just talk about whether this is a good thing or not, Ricky. I, generally speaking, think there's no harm for young kids, especially early on when they're starting a sport, to get some kind of recognition, whether it's a certificate, a trophy, whatever, for finishing a season of a sport, especially if it's your first year doing the sport, because I do think that is an accomplishment to just finish a season when you're learning a new sport. But it sounds but you like need you need a shiny need... thing to. Why not? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, so back in in my heyday as a fabulous athlete, I was a figure skater, and I remember we had two separate events. Like we w- we would go to Lake Placid to compete, and we would get medals like silver gold bronze based on your um like how well you do and that was something that I took a ton of pride in and then at the end of the season I like would skate at this club and everyone would get a trophy for just doing it at some like dinner that we would hold at the end of the the night and I remember being really excited about it because it was my first trophy that I brought home I had to have been like five and I don't remember which parent it was but someone really put the kibosh on it and was like yeah, everyone has one of those. And I I still remember being like, yeah, I'm not proud of this thing. And this is like the bigger, shinier thing. But I had, I did get a gold medal for my interpretive, um, like on the spot performance to what I believe was a Hannah Montana song. So I would say I like, I don't think this is a positive thing to just give people shiny things with no actual, you know, worth behind them. I think it's caused or not directly caused, but perhaps not helped um, a sense that everyone is kind of special and needs a gold star just for showing up, which I do think my generation kind of has taken into adulthood a little bit with them. So I don't know. But did you get so you you were a participation trophy person as well, despite not I being think I, had, I think I had them. I have to go back. I have to go back over them. But and they could be like fifth place, third place, whatever. You know, I don't know what they say, but yeah. But the, what's the point of even having places? Then maybe we should just have a. We should just. But they're not, not mutually exclusive. Rank. You could say, "Hey, here's this crappy thing you get for finishing the season, and then here's this awesome thing you get for winning the season." And you could still recognize the people for winning while you also recognize people for finishing. And it, it doesn't have to be a trophy. Like what I would do is, you know, you can get you can get a little bit creative here. Uh, let's go to this. Uh, there's this parody video out here of this Texas Little League coach where he gives out personalized certificates. Now, this is a parody, and there's... <laughs> I don't endorse everything <laughs> But the kids video. are actually in this. Uh, yeah. So let's... Yeah, that major <laughs> questions about that. But uh, let's go to... This is Scott Bergen 
Texas Little League coach who's handing out, for those of you listening, uh, handing out certificates to each of these kids who appear to be very, very young. I mean, maybe five, six years old. Uh, let's let's go to this clip. Most teams or most leagues, they hand out participation trophies at the end of the season. Um, but given that we managed to lose 11 games this season, <laughs> the league, I guess, concluded that you guys didn't really even participate. You were just here, just on a team. So there'll be no participation trophies this season. You're gonna, they gave us this certificate. This, it just basically certifies that you were on a team, okay? Um, and there's a little spot for me to fill out. It says something about, he is, rec the players recognized. So I wrote, tough, but I tried to fill out something for each one of you on what you were recognized as doing. All right, so Carter. Uh, first certificate, you are recognized for killing the grass in right field. You, did, you never moved. And there's a spot out there that you killed that she named up you. Go Carter. Bodie. Where's Bodie? You suck at baseball, but your stepmom is hot. And, and your hot stepmom is the only reason we put you on the team. So you're recognized for having the hottest stepmom on the team. There you go. Jace. This doesn't need much explanation. Uh, you're the reason Coach Scott started drinking again. Where's James? <laughs> Is he not here? Right? No, you're right in front of me. Nathaniel, we saw your name on the draft list. We thought you were Dominican, and we were like, Dude, this kid's going to be good. We showed up to your first practice, and it's like, the kid's swing looks like it's from the barrio. So you have a swing that's from the barrio. Good job. I'm more in favor of this. <laughs> well, let's pretend that he didn't like say inappropriate things to children, but that he actually wrote like special things to be like, Hey, like you're, you know, shout out to Johnny for always being early to practice. And that'll be the thing on his certificate or to, you know, Sally for always hustling, even if we're down or whatever. So you, you, you actually give feedback through the certificate. And I, like, if I were looking back now, like we were talking about my experience, we just say like, what if I had that certificate now? And I look back and I'm like, you know, shout out to Ravi for, you know, always hustling, even when we're losing. I'd be like, oh, that's something I would actually keep. I would keep that, you know? Mm, I don't know. Feels a little disingenuous, a little forced to me. I think if if a kid actually does something exceptional, then you'd you or even not exceptional and they show up early to practice, you say, good job showing up early to practice today. And you don't need something special in the gold star to bring home with you. I mean, I to be clear, I don't think that we need a law at, like banning this outright. Um, I think that's a little bit of an overkill. I also would like to point out that the law's name is called an act to prohibit awards and youth recreation activities of local governments based solely on participation, which is very clever title that they came up with for this really brilliant piece of legislation. Not sure we need the government though. Not sure we need I know, the I don't think I don't think we need the government involved in this. I agree. But I do think that kids should be like learn what it means to fail sometimes. And I think that this is like a larger, more systemic issue in in schools in general, like the move away from giving kids F's if that is something that they've earned or the great inflation that we've talked about in general. And I think that in terms of athletics, that's something that that's an, that is an issue as well. And so as much as I do agree with Jason Gay that um, there's 
certainly a culture war that I think is a little bit more rabid than it necessarily needs to be. I do also think that there can be an issue in youth participation in sports as well as an issue with participation trophies. It feels a little bit like whataboutism to me. Um, and I, I mean, but I do think I don't, I don't need the laws to get involved. I'd rather just confiscate my child's participation trophy and tell them to do better next time. Cause I'll be a really fun mom. Well, let's uh, let's get one more take here. This is a, from a woman named Jennifer Alessandra, who was US, on USC's uh, national championship swimming and diving team in 1997. You see, for rewards to work, they need to be earned. When rewards are earned, internal motivation is created. Achievement, not empty praise, leads to self-esteem and then further achievement. Participation trophies can stunt competitiveness and lead to entitlement. They thwart entrepreneurial thinking, invention, and innovation by strangling the drive to continuously improve. In an attempt to spare children the hurt that comes with failure, participation trophies rob kids of learning by losing. You know, this reminds me of when, when I was starting my first school, Nashville Prep, I used to ask questions of everybody who'd apply for the job, and I used to give people this false choice, which was, if you could do one of two things, either raise student achievement or raise their self-esteem. And, and you could only do one of those two things by the end of the year. Which of the two would you pick? And it was obviously a false choice, but I just wanted to see when forced to choose what people would choose. And if you chose raise self-esteem over student achievement, you wouldn't get a job. And I know it sounds harsh, but part of it was just a mindset. Like my, I agree totally with what she's saying, which is in order to, even though I'm like, I don't, I don't really think that participation trophies are a big deal. I agree with the point she's making around like the way to raise self-esteem is to help kids achieve, not to just say nice things to them all the time, like because that stuff becomes empty over time. And we did a whole podcast episode about this uh, on Sweat the Technique's very first episode with this guy named Doug Lamov who talks all about how to give feedback to kids. So I'm with the, I'm with the, the general theory here. I just think that we can give kids stuff for finishing a season. Actually, do you think that is an accomplishment, finishing a season? I don't. I think that's the bare minimum. I mean, that's just being there. That's I, I completely disagree that that's an accomplishment beyond just doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's, I, I don't know. And I also think we're talking a lot about the perspective of the kid that just gets the trophy for the sake of it, but it also takes away from the kid who did do the best, whose excellence should be rewarded at, to a degree beyond everyone else around them. And I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I agree that this is a, a bigger fight than we ought to have, but I do think that it's emblematic of, of larger issues in terms of wanting equitable outcomes for everyone despite excellence and, and doling those who actually do achieve. But I don't know. Perhaps we can let the culture war what wheels you, a break. What do you think about like a nice little photo with maybe a nice frame or something? Like I want the kids to have something, you know, yeah. photo of the team. Why not a photo? That seems okay. nice. But I don't think do forcing praise where there maybe isn't any praise warranted is necessarily a thing that I do think, is positive. I do think after watching that coach, what would be awesome is if at the end of every season of youth sports, I had a letter from the coach saying, hey, like this is like what my experience with you has been and like any shout outs that are authentic that can go in there. Cause honestly, that would be cool. That would be something I would save. So maybe I would put that next to the photo 
and that would be better than any trophy. Any and what if you sucked? Like, what if you just phoned it in and you sat in the outfield? Then it would be obvious. Then, you know, I you had want this, that you want the negative feedback if it's warranted for for well, a child. I just probably too? wouldn't keep that. Yeah, but I but I think according to this theory, kids learn. Right. And I agree with this theory, like feedback is important. Right. And I think part of the reason why people criticize participation trophies is that it's false feedback. Right. Whereas if you get real feedback, that's helpful. You might not frame it. Like a good example is I worked at the DOJ one summer and this guy who used to run the program for interns used to write at the end of every summer, he used to write you a review and he would he said this will be what i write in any letter or recommendation and they were <laughs> we everybody used to compare they were brutally honest for everybody and we used to sit around at the end of the year and and like trade like look at them with each other and nobody would ever ask this guy for a letter <laughs> or recommendation cuz even though like sometimes people did a good job you don't want like letters of recommendation tend to be only positive so um smart by him so he probably wasn't getting a lot of requests but okay let's actually before we move off of this Let's talk about the the other issue that Jason Gay points out here, which is the the decrease in youth participation. And to remind people of the stat we started with, uh, percentage of kids age six to twelve who regularly played a team sport dropped from forty five percent in two thousand eight to thirty seven percent in twenty twenty one, and the drop was well underway before COVID uh, took place. And uh, there are a lot of different theories theories as to why this is happening, um, and. Part of the data is like kids are starting but not finishing and the reason why we might want to incentivize them to finish. But there's also uh, this rise of pay-to-play travel leagues where, you know, things like AAU for high school uh, where kids are, are paying into more and more expensive programs that are more specialized. And uh, that you compare that with some data that shows that just 24% of children from families with incomes of $25,000 play sports regularly versus 40% from families with incomes of $100,000 or more. So nearly double uh, as you go up the income scale. This seems like a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I would also say, you know, this is a downtick that the starting point is 2008. And I do think that screens and screen time and, and iPads and iPhones and smartphones are all probably a large contributor to this, too, because, you know, you have your kids sitting around all summer with nothing to do, doing something you know, getting into trouble before you had a screen to occupy them. And so, you know, there might be more of an impetus to send them to some sort of organized team sport versus now. So I'm sure that that's also something that's at play here. But I would say, yeah, I looking back on my own childhood, that's probably part of the reason why I was never in a team sport is that I was kind of occupied. Um, and then I ended up getting my high school superlative was only child syndrome. So it <laughs> backfired. <laughs> yeah, I... I could only say, like, when I was a kid, all we did was play sports. Like, whether they were organized sports yeah. or just sports. Most of my sports playing, and, and I'd be interested in what the data shows around this. I imagine it's not great. Like, informal sports. So, just, like, going and playing pickup basketball with your friends or, you know, we, we play everything. I mean, literally mm-hmm. any sport that you could imagine. And I just can't imagine life without that. I mean, I still do it. It's what I write in that Imbroglio piece, like, pretty much, which is, like, playing sports is is such a important part of being a kid and i do agree like if we had video games like this like what i what i see these kids playing right now these video games look so real they're without a doubt incredibly fun mm-hmm. like 
it is a true crisis. Uh, yeah. I don't know what to do about it, though. Like, what do you do? I mean, other than, like, as parents, like, shutting off the, the video games and closing the screens. Is your cat making noise back there? I could hear your cat. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Lola, okay. Lola found her little fake mouse thing, and she's doing a little so performance she's... in the background. There you go. She's staying um, active. But I but do yeah, have do you to do say shout this? out. Yeah. Uh, Shout out to my parents for actually pushing me out there for as long as they could to get me to off the screens to do sports. But at a certain point in time, I remember my mom being like, yeah, this is just not your thing and we're not going to force you anymore. And you can just sit around and do schoolwork instead. Um, do you not play sports anymore? No, I'm I'm a very inactive person, I have to admit. But thankfully, my mom didn't force me too far down that rabbit hole. Because another thing that that Jason Gay brings up is that we kind of have taken the fun out of it, too, and just doing it for the sake of it. Like now it's for college admissions or um, like it's your your foot in the door for whatever opportunity. And like it should just be for the sake of it, um, which is totally lost, I think, at least in my little boarding school ecosystem. Like I was on JV tennis and it was 12 hours a week. It's like JV tennis. Why can't that just be a couple hours and just for fun? Yeah, that that does sound excessive. 12 hours a week. 12 hours a week. And on Saturday practices as well. Ridiculous. Well, Ricky, your favorite topic, free speech on campus. Uh, there's a uh, some stuff happening over there in Harvard. What's going on? Yeah, I just recently came out with an article at the, at the Post about a um, council on academic freedom that was started at Harvard by um, psychology professor Steven Pinker, also best-selling author. He wrote a Boston Globe op-ed about how there was a need to reinvigorate um, free speech on campus and that he wanted Harvard to be a leader in doing that. And Really impressively, they they gathered 105 professors is the latest tally that I've heard who all signed on together to form this council. And so we spoke to Ned Hall, who's a co-president of the council. He's a philosophy professor at Harvard, um, and he specializes in metaphysics and the philosophy of science. And it was a really interesting interview. Well, Professor Hall, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, it was a pleasure meeting you to write this article and now having you on the podcast. And I think first, let's start with just hearing what inspired you to get into the council and the um, lead up to you joining it. Sure thing. And thanks for having me. Appreciate the chance to talk in greater depth. So for me personally, the the, the overriding issue that motivated me to want to join the council was concerns I was hearing from students about um, not being able to experience the kind of sort of stimulating environment that they hoped that they were getting into when they came to Harvard. Um, I've had a lot of students from very different political perspectives talk to me um, about how when they came to Harvard, they were hoping to encounter students with very different viewpoints, which they do. There's quite a lot of viewpoint diversity on the campus, but not just encounter, engage with them, have stimulating conversations. And there's a, a, um, a sense among them that that's difficult to do, more difficult than it should be. And the more I talk to fellow colleagues, the, the stronger my sense gets that this is a pervasive problem. And then, of course, if you read stories like the Council of Higher Education, it's not hard to find stories that suggest that this is not a Harvard-specific problem, that in, in general in campuses, um, for a variety of different reasons, I think, what, what we're not doing on those campuses is giving students a really, really kind of bracing, stimulating, challenging, and exciting liberal arts education. 
uh, and that's partly because for reasons that I think are complicated and I don't fully understand, they experience um, dialogue across disagreement as something that's really difficult to do. And, and Professor, yeah. how long have you been uh, a professor uh, on college campuses? Do I have to answer that? Um, <laughs> you don't have to answer. Basically, it's a lead up. It's, it's a lead up to just asking, yeah. like, what has changed? Like, yeah. like since you know, when you entered. Yeah. So comparing it to '94, and you know, I was in college from 2001 to 2005, and so to, I could speak to my experience, which was very uh, during a very mm -hmm. heated period of American life, 9/11 mm -hmm. through the Iraq War mm -hmm. and Afghanistan wars, and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of debates around Israel-Palestine issues, et cetera. And I went to Binghamton, which is a place that has has had a lot of controversy lately on for free, free speech. And then I went to Yale Law School, which also has had some controversy mm -hmm. a lot around free mm -hmm. speech issues. I would say that in both of those campuses back then, there were none of these issues. Uh, like anybody could talk about anything pretty much. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, yeah, sometimes it would get yeah. heated and... We cared a lot about the issues. Yeah. You know, I used to join protests for the Iraq War, for example, and and I cared a lot about that. But when I read about some of the incidents, including on those two campuses now, it feels different. Does it feel different to you? Yeah, I, I feel like I'm to some extent sheltered from it in my regular teaching life, partly because I teach in a philosophy department and we tend to select for students who want to argue with each other. So, so I think other colleagues may experience it more dramatically. Um, but I, I feel like there's been a change. And what that's come from, I don't think there's one factor, one um, one issue that students repeatedly mention now that they certainly didn't mention 10 years ago is the effect of social media. You know, the sense that a conversation you're having in a space where you might think like what gets said there is just going to live there and that's it. You, they're no longer sure that that's true now. Um, mm -hmm. And... I, I suspect that that's like a nonpartisan issue. You could have like students on all sorts of campuses with very different political orientations who have that same nervousness that, you know, what you say in what looks like a group of like eight or 10 people in a classroom may not just stay there. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's one big change. And um, it's, I think, important to remember that these are students who are like 18, 19, 20 years old. They come to a place where they don't, typically don't know anyone Having friendships is really important, and building friendships is really important, especially because I think the friendships they make in college may be lifelong friendships. And so there's a kind of calculus. Like, do I want to say something for the sake of having a stimulating conversation in the knowledge that it might come back to bite me if it gets posted on an email list, you know, on a listserv or in a group me, you know, or on someone's Instagram? Mm -hmm and might threaten my like social well-being. So I think that's one thing that's changed. It's not the only thing right. we could also like point to the effects of like like massively increased polarization in the public sphere and a general sense in the populace at large that if you're on the the other side of me for, on some political issue then that automatically qualifies you as the enemy, which I also didn't feel like I didn't feel like even in the discussions of the Iraq war, I didn't feel like that was so much the case. I felt like, yeah, you no, know, people could debate in good faith whether we should be going to war there and and still kind of respect each other after the after they stopped shouting. No. Right. And, you know, Ricky and I debate this a lot or discuss it, which is the the freedom of speech argument for the point of view that's being attacked and then the attacking itself like what like when we talk about shouting somebody down mm -hmm. or posting mm -hmm. a conversation for example mm -hmm. that you have with somebody and critiquing it even if it's in a caustic way 
like when we th- talk about a free speech culture, like not the law. Obviously, we're putting the law aside. You know, yeah. we're talking about a college yeah. case. Like, like how should we think about the right of the person to interrupt somebody else? The right of the person mm-hmm. to have an aggressive mm-hmm. comeback to somebody. The right of some mm-hmm. somebody to attack somebody else on on social media. And how much of this is the language of rights versus? The, the language of just politeness, I guess, is mm-hmm. the language. Because you know? mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to figure out is like, does free speech protect stuff that doesn't sound great? You know? Yeah. That- I I think, I, I guess when it comes to like, like the things like the First Amendment, I find myself being very old school and thinking there should be very, very broad protections on speech, um, including like really caustic speech criticizing someone else's speech. Um, right. Um, on college campuses, there are other issues at stake, and I don't think they're issues that should be managed by having like legislation, you know, um, the, at least legislation that goes beyond basic protections on the rights of people to to speak in a way that will allow them to be heard. So was, let me pause over that for a second. I think, for example, that what happened at Stanford was like a clear violation of policies that ought to be in place. And I was really glad to see that the dean of the law school there pushed back. Um, I'm assuming your readers, your listeners know the case we're, we're talking about, but it was work where a, you know, a, a justice whose views I expect I would despise was shouted down in, um, right. uh, in, a, in a lecture. And I think that kind of thing absolutely shouldn't happen. Um, now, that's consistent. You could you could have rules that protect that kind of give and take on a college campus and still have it be an incredibly uncomfortable environment where people are are self-censoring a lot for the reason I said before, that they don't want to jeopardize their social relations with one another. And you're not going to handle that by introducing rules. Like, you will say what you meet, you think in class, right. no matter what. Like, like that would be terrible. How would you enforce it? Um, so... So what's tricky on college campuses is fostering a sense of trust between students where they think, like, it's okay if we disagree. In fact, it's good if we do. In fact, we should, like, prize that. And we don't need to view each other as enemies, not in this space. And part of that, I think, is, like, getting students to just, like, chill out a bit about how how dangerous ideas are in that setting. Right. Um, so I'm... You, know, you look at the broad sweep of history and you think ideas can be hugely dangerous. You know, like look at the history of like slavery in the United States, the idea that certain races are inherently familiar, had a lot of purchase, you no, know, still does, unfortunately, but and and did incredible damage. So I don't want to be Pollyannish and suggest like, no, we're just talking about ideas. They're they're not dangerous. Right. Of course they're dangerous. But not in a college setting, that's not where you have to worry about the the danger of like like floating ideas, even ones that you might in other con- contexts think are really noxious. Like, I don't, I mean, my, the example I just gave is not a good example because that idea is kind of like has been so thoroughly debated that there's not much new to say about how stupid it is, right? But there right. are other cases where we're in the midst of social change and it's not, you know, it's not clear how to think. It's not clear yet how we should think about the relationship between sex and gender. Not clear to everybody. No, right. maybe in 20 years, we'll look back and and think like, boy, people were really confused back then. You know, the same right. way now, I think a lot of people think like, oh, you know, 20 years ago when we were debating gay marriage, it wasn't clear to people how to think about that. I right. think in retrospect, we kind of answered that question and my own views, we answered it right. But I don't think at the time it was it was clear. 
And yeah, and even that is a good example because I I believe in right to gay marriage uh, firmly. But if I were with somebody who didn't, I don't think that their their viewpoint is illegitimate. I right. might think it's incorrect. Well, that's because right. but I don't think you're not the you know, member of Gen Z here, and I can tell you a hundred percent that if anybody dared to put that viewpoint, which I mean, it's not my viewpoint either, but from my context, if anyone dared mm. to voice that viewpoint or even to play the role of a devil's advocate in a yeah. classroom setting, the assumption is always, even if you preface, like I'm playing devil's advocate here, or let's argue the pros and cons of something, no matter how contentious it might be, it's like morally ascribed to you that this is you as a human being right. holding this, this idea. And that yeah. the idea is like somehow like just intrinsically linked to you as a person and your personhood, which I think is so dangerous. And I, I'm a hundred percent agree with your yeah. impression of how people my age feel in classroom settings. It's a great and, point, Ricky. I mean, I, yeah. the thing you just said about students not being able to take at face value and, and, and in a kind of charitable way, when someone says, I'm going to play devil's advocate, that's a serious problem in an educational setting. No, right. and it's not going to be solved by protecting free speech. No, um, like that's not going to that's not going to nudge. That alone is not going to nudge students out of the mindset that somehow views it as beyond the pale to say, suppose you know this religious view is correct, or like, or let's just entertain what kind of viewpoint would like intelligible viewpoint would view gay marriages somehow wrong. And let's investigate that. Not because we think it's right, but because we just want to understand the worldview. That's really hard to do. And it's unfortunate. I mean, it's well, question for both of you, because you're both seeing this from different sides as a student, Ricky and, and professor, obviously in your role, as somebody who's been out of the game for a while and teaching at least uh, college students, the, how much of this is driven by a sincere fear? Right, like how mm. much of this is students who really do fear when they say words are violence? Like how much of this is them actually feeling unsafe? And how much of this is this this performance culture? You know, you hear people critiquing it as a performance culture and that it's, it, and, and I think the presumption behind that critique is that it's not genuine. That it's more about signaling to other people around you than actually conveying a real feeling of lack of safety. Mm. If you were to like ascribe a bar chart to this right now on the fly, how would you allocate those percentages? Yeah. I'd say my, no, do you want to go first? Oh, go for it. Go for it. I, God, that's such a good question. I would put bar charts with big error bars around them. No, because like, <laughs> yes. like for all I know, it's like, it's an unfair question, yeah, professor. I, yeah. I do want to name that, but I just, I want to just <laughs> no, hear you guys think yeah, through yeah. it though. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, part of the reason it's hard to say is that it doesn't take many people to be, you know, like start saying things like you're enacting violence in the classroom mm -hmm. you know, um, for other students to see that and think like, am I, you know, Oh no, yep. I, I don't want to be enacting violence. I certainly don't want to be accused of that. So, um, and, and, but I guess you're asking like, what's the motivation of the people saying that? Um, yeah. there are some cases that I know of that look performative just because it's so absurd that the idea um, I'll give you a specific like example, like a, a, a student being accused of enacting violence because they argue that that um, two people who put different efforts into a job, if they get different levels of reward because of that, that's not more not morally problematic, right? So, mm -hmm. so the the opposing viewpoint there is so radically egalitarian that it says like no, 
Like everyone should get the same, you know, and you're right. like, but that's like, like the idea that you'd be enacting violence by defending the opposite is in that case absurd. But it, it's harder to say, like, suppose someone argue is arguing like there's no difference between sex and gender. And you have a student who's transgender and lives in a society where in major parts of this country, they, they're viewed like even like by public officials as kinds of deviants who should be, you know, punished or marginalized or who it's okay to be, you know, terrorized or even kill. Like, yeah. you got to take that that fear seriously. Um, I, I I agree with you. And I think like the implicit bias conversation is one that I, 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 I struggle to wrap my head around it because I in some ways disagree with the ways that it's being pushed in the extremes of the left and I've been in a lot of those mm -hmm. conversations but at the same time I've had plenty of conversations with people in my life who truly are genuinely scarred so deep because of the way they're treated mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in everyday interactions mm -hmm. that yeah. I genuinely believe in my heart and some of them were my former students so professor you probably don't know this but I was a former school principal mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. like way when some of our former students in North Nashville if they go to the Green Hills Mall in Nashville for example how they're treated in a store is mm -hmm. unquestionably different mm -hmm. than if I were to walk into that store mm -hmm. and so when they hear conversations around implicit bias they get very frustrated really quickly when it's dismissed off offhand now that doesn't mean it's violence or anything like that but right. the frustration is right. real you know what I'm saying right. yeah so Ricky how would you answer Ravi's question um I would say that I mean it's obviously impossible to ascribe abs like exact percentages but I would say the most outspoken kids consistently one thing that I've noticed is that it's very rarely you're enacting violence against me it's always I'm defending this vulnerable other party mm -hmm. and typically mm -hmm. people of that background are not the ones that are coming out it's like it's somebody who's saying like i'm i'm here to protect them and i i do feel that mm -hmm. that's more performative but i have no mm -hmm. idea like whether the kid that's sitting in the back of the class who is of that demographic or it does would be of whatever group is aggrieved by some sort of statement is actually internalizing it i don't know but i, I certainly do believe that there are genuinely people who believe that that speech is violence or that speech can wound like i i and I don't think that's a helpful vantage point, but I think that, you know, it can kind of serve as both social points when you're the person who's going to come up and be the defender. But it can also be um, like very cognitively damaging to walk around and feel as though you're that fragile. I mean, I think that's kind of the coddling of the American mind's entire thesis, um, more or less. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be able mm -hmm. to put exact percentages, but I think that oftentimes the very outspoken students are often not doing it because they themselves feel wounded. It's, it's, I'm mm -hmm. going to be the kid who stands up here for everyone else. I think yeah. the language around allyship is challenging. Yeah. And I'm not sure, Ricky, uh, if this is still a thing that you're seeing, but I often get asked, especially like in the world of progressive politics, to be an ally. And often what that means is unquestionably agree mm -hmm. with whatever the mm -hmm. person is saying. And mm -hmm. usually they have a particular viewpoint about what a historically disenfranchised population, mm -hmm. like what's in their best interest and what it means to be an ally is to just completely agree with that. Right. And, you know, they don't look at John McWhorter or Coleman Hughes as an ally. Mm -hmm. Or if I were to agree with his position, it's it, he's not an ally. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not an ally if I agree with that. I have to agree with the right handpicked mm -hmm. scholar, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like a tricky position to be in because you don't want to be like, I'm not an ally, right? But the choice as it's framed is often like it, it kind of corners you. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, and one thing that's a little disturbing about that conception of allyship is usually we're talking about moral questions. And this could reflect my bias as a philosopher, but I think it's really important that people learn how to come to conclusions about moral questions for themselves. You know, right. like we have kids, we've raised kids. We didn't, you know, we try to raise them to be morally dis- decent people, but not by saying, here are the correct moral views. And, we're, and you know, every weekend we're going to have a test to make sure you're like getting them and you will like, like say them back. Um, it's more, we want them to get to the point where we hope they come to views like ours. Although in some cases they don't. And that's because our views are the ones that need to change. And they show us that. Right. right? But we hope they come to them on their own, like autonomously. Um, and I think like when we think about like when I think of, like in Massachusetts, like I was in the thick of like just informal debates with our friend group about gay marriage. Um, and, you know, you could see the change happening in the right what felt to me, at least like in the right way. Not that people right. are like, well, I don't agree, but I'm going to get in trouble. So I'm just going to, you know, like like, you know, uh, pledge my allegiance to the appropriate cause. But people really coming around. And, yeah. you know, when I think about like, like long-term moral change in a society, this might be Pollyannish in me, but that's like the ideal for me is it happens because yeah. enough people see for themselves why their view should change. And I'm trying to remember from my philosophy classes, like a fallacy, is it a fallacy argument from authority? Is that a, is that a fallacy? Like meaning like, cause I think that what we're talking about is a mm-hmm. form of a fallacy, yeah. right? Which is yeah. like, if I'm like, Hey, like, I'm quoting Ta-Nehisi Coates mm-hmm. and I'm like, as an Indian guy being like, Hey, like, look, I'm not sure I agree with mm-hmm. him. And somebody's being like, well, like, how would you know better than him? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying that that per- particular persu- perspective hasn't persuaded me mm-hmm. yet with its logic mm-hmm. yet. That's kind of like the tension is I feel like there is a, a particular kind of argument from authority that I see very present in this current generation where it's like, find the voice, cannot challenge the voice if it's authentically felt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and I, I think, I mean, in general argument from authority is tricky. It depends on what the subject matter is. Like if I'm talking to like, you know, like uh, a surgeon, I have to go in for some procedure, you know, (laughs) but, but, but moral views are different. I think. I think there's something yeah. really interesting about about coming to a view about right and wrong, about good and bad. That that there's something um, at least unsettling and maybe like deeply wrongheaded about the idea that you can just learn the right moral views just from authority. Like yeah. an authority, like there might still be authorities in the sense of like you really should read this person and wrestle with what they have to say, and you'd be irresponsible sure. if you're not. But that's totally consistent with what you're saying. You're not saying I dismiss Coates. You're saying, yeah, I read it and I thought about it. And I'm not yet convinced. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, well oh, sorry. Ricky. I saw recently that there was um, kind of a critical take in the Harvard Crimson about the council. I'm curious to hear how. Um, the the reception has been since since it's been announced and how that's evolved over time. It's it's a really good question, Ricky. It's it's a little hard to say. Um, our numbers have grown pretty rapidly, um, but I don't I don't think it's yet settled in in the minds of people in our community what we are or what we're for. Um, and I've already seen just from some interactions I've had the kind of skepticism that sounds like this. Oh. You people just want to defend um, the right of like fringe groups to invite like nasty, controversial speakers to campus, something like that. You know, um, um, which is like 
so not what we're about. Like, like the the motivation that that I was like giving voice to the. Uh, beginning of our segment. That's, as far as I can tell, the motivation of certainly of all of the founding members. They're primarily concerned about the educational experience students are having and how to like build a place where they can have a much better one. Um, but that said, I mean, I'm sure you both know that the expressions like academic freedom and especially free speech are politically coded. Um, maybe in different ways in different parts of the of the country, and that's we feel like that's noise we're just going to have to fight against. We're just going to have to like say our message loudly and consistently. Um, mm-hmm. And we're young, you know. We just like got together in a kind of very informal fashion, and then all of a sudden, like announced our existence and grew. And now we're like, oh no, we're an organization. <laughs> we need to right. actually like develop bylaws and you know a, like clear statements of principles and have a good FAQ on our website and all this stuff that we haven't had time to do yet. So I'm I'm not like taking pushback right now that seriously because I think if there is pushback it's likely to be motivated by like oh you're for for free speech so you must be right wing which is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. but but it does I'm so in that sense I'm not taking serious it seriously. In another sense I am namely we have to do some really good messaging to make clear that no we're actually for something that everybody ought to be able to sign on to which is like an amazing educational experience for our students even if it's one that's going to be upsetting and challenging at times yeah i think like one one passage that they took issue with this crimson uh, editorial board it seems like they're generally with you in certain respects, but they didn't like this sentence from the letter from Pinker and Professor mm. Majus, which was, quote, when activists are shouting into an administrator's ear, we will speak calmly but vigorously into the other one, end quote. Mm-hmm. And I think about this from the perspective mm-hmm. of not not the viewpoints that are necessarily to being expressed today, but let's say, for example, Yale Law School, right, that, which is like arguably a little too comfortable with China, right, as a mm. country. And mm. so if I'm like an activist, like, and let's say I'm like a Uyghur, a, you know, a Uyghur human rights mm-hmm. activist on campus, and I'm like getting mm-hmm. worked up over it and being like, look, like we shouldn't, you know, be, you know, partnering with an authoritarian regime and you're getting worked up over it. And then like the admini- the other professors who count on their like, you know, fancy new center being named after the right person mm-hmm. are speaking calmly mm-hmm. into the administrator's mm-hmm. ear while somebody else is protesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure that calm speaking is like a good thing, you know, yeah. like I want us to actually engage <laughs> in this this issue because we're talking about a genocide going yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, in the, you know what I'm saying? Totally. So, like, I think that's what set the crimson yeah, off a little yeah. bit. Yeah. You know? So, so this is interesting because I think what you're going to see over time is that within the council, we're going to have vigorous disagreements about the exact, con- you know, contours of what we're we're trying to push for. And this is one place where where um, you know, I think that Pinker and Madras were maybe getting a little too carried away with cute rhetoric because I'm on your side yeah. on this. Depending, I mean, if if the if the the image is supposed to be activists shouting down that's one thing but if it's right. just activists being you no know, really um uh expressing at, like moral outrage but like advancing reasons why they're outraged that's fine um i in fact uh, you know a few years ago i was part of an effort at harvard to get the university to divest from fossil fuels and the faculty 
definitely pursued that we're just going to advance patient arguments because we knew that's the best that was the best lane for us to occupy. Um, but we were we were like all in with the students who were uh, protesting in louder ways, you know, more vocal right. ways, like the the Harvard Yale football game, you know. And eventually <laughs> we, we kind of won that. And I don't think there was anything wrong with that. No. And I'm sure right. there were people like calmly whispering into Larry Bacow's ear, like, no, you know, it's really much better for the endowment if we sort of stay in fossil fuels or whatever. No. Right. Um, so, so I think, I think it's fair for the, the Crimson to, to push back on that as, as long as they don't lose sight of like the major issues, which I, I really right. think is like campus culture. Like, you know, you could ask undergraduates, are you having the conversations you thought you would be having? Right. Like, and, and Ricky, like Ricky and I have had this conversation where I, I'm starting to get the sense that the climate, at least outside of academia is, is a little bit more hospitable today than it was in 2020 in terms of the ability to say controversial topics on this podcast, for example, mm -hmm. or, you know, for me and progressive mm -hmm. politics to get up and say things like criticize defund the police, for yeah, example, right. or whatever. Right. I get the sense that that's true outside of politics in part because there's been a backlash to the backlash, mm -hmm. but I mean, sorry, outside of oh, academia. academia. Yeah. Is that the sense inside academia or is it worse today than it was even a few That's years That's really ago? interesting. I had that sense like uh, of what's going on outside academia too. You know, partly I like to read people like Freddie DeBoer on this mm -hmm. subject who says what you just said, that he senses that people are just getting tired of the kind of the hyper moralistic posturing that can happen in the public sphere. I'm, my very, very untutored hunch is that we're just a we're just a couple of years behind inside the academy, but mm -hmm. that you're starting to see a backlash. And partly, yeah. partly we're slow, you know. Honestly, <laughs> we're we're slow. It's like we teach our classes and things are beginning to change, and we're thinking like, huh, this class didn't go as well as last time. And it takes a few years for us to know it's like, wait, my student is arguing that like that shouldn't be on the syllabus because it enacts violence to have us read that article. Like that's like what just mm -hmm. happened, um, and then and then you have faculty thinking like, I I you know years of experience of what it's like to teach well and to really open students' eyes to something that's exciting and interesting even if it's unsettling, and now that's not happening so much. And what I so right. what I see is like, I, I, it's not exactly backlash. It's more like we're discovering the effects of a change in in culture on stuff that is precious to us mm -hmm. and starting yeah. to wake up to that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I just hope we do it in the right way, you know, not in a way that like calls out students as like overly woke or, you know, <laughs> snowflakes or anything like that, but under tries to understand like, what are the pressures on them that are making them say things like that speech is violent. Now, where's right. that coming from? Um, Cause for me, it's like yelling at the students to be less like snowflakey or something is that's a bad pedagogical technique. You know, it's not, it's not going to actually work. No. Um, but I think there is change happening. And I think that's the, the uh, creation, the very, very quick creation of the council um, is an example of that. You know, Flynn Craddy, who was kind of our faculty ringleader, was expecting it to take a couple of years and it was a, a couple of months. And is this spreading to other universities? Because I've mm. anecdotally seen, you know, the president of Cornell pushing back against trigger warnings, the Stanford Law Dean, as you mentioned, standing up for free speech there. Are you seeing this catch fire a bit? Because I know our listeners are going to listen to this and be like, who gives a shit about Harvard? They're so <laughs> fancy. They're going to do yeah, their own thing. Yeah. But like, I think part of the reason why we're interviewing you is because they're... Because I get that, I got that criticism when I talked about the affirmative action case, where people mm -hmm. were like, "Well, mm -hmm. why are you spending?" Because we did two episodes on that, and 
and what I said back was, well, Harvard often represents a trend that you're going to see elsewhere. Uh, and it's also a very powerful institution. So it's one that you should take very seriously. Uh, but yeah, what's your answer to like why people should care about this particular effort at Harvard and you know, maybe baked into that is like where yeah, else? Great question. Actually, look, to be to be brutally honest, um, people should be in a wait and see attitude. No, um, um, best case scenario, our council attracts enough faculty with enough like commitment to this core issue about quality of education that we put our collective resources together in really creative ways to find ways to move the needle. You know, like even down at the level of like we have we have tried out the following classroom techniques to build trust in a classroom so students can have hard conversations. And here's what we've discovered. These are the ones mm -hmm. that work. And here's why, you know, that's the kind of it's not. No, it's not as glamorous as issuing big, like, you know, bold statements. No, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's actually the stuff that's going to be useful if we do that then people should care because we're offering resources that can be um, drawn on elsewhere. And hopefully, you know, a few years down the line, we'll have testimonials from students who are like, I'm really glad this happened. You know, my experience is like so much better now than it was before. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm oh, super Oh, you bet. Excited. Thanks for setting the time aside. Yeah, Really appreciate it. Well, thank you again to Professor Hall for joining us. It was a really terrific interview. Super interesting. You know, I, I think what's fascinating here is people think about uh, professors in universities as liberals, which they tend to be, but there's like different shades of what it means to be liberal. And I think what it means to be liberal is actually very much under debate right now in this country. And so, you know, I think you use the term classically liberal a lot. And I think mm -hmm. there's like sort of this, this battle between the classical liberals and some other new form of progressivism. And we see it in campuses and then you start to see it in organizations and our politics, et cetera. And, you know, they're they're fighting the good fight. Yeah. And I would say that classical liberalism is not a partisan right left thing for sure. And so it's nice to see that this was um, there are no strong political stands or, or slants in terms of this council. And it seems to have brought a lot of people together across the aisle, which is heartening. And I think one of many little glimmers of hope that I've gotten from academia recently. So left me feeling good for a change about the state of free speech. Well, Ravi, they say that two things in life are certain, taxes and death, and apparently both are pretty expensive, aren't they? Yes. Uh, the business of death amounts to about $20 billion. Uh, so that's about the same size as the global music industry. And funeral homes charged a median of $9,420 for a viewing, burial, and vault in 2021. Uh, that's excluding the cost of a plot and a gravestone. And it's less for cremation, which is $6,970. And U.S. is experiencing like a crisis of what they call funeral poverty with some families having to leave loved ones unclaimed in county custody due to high costs. It's about 100,000 families are having to do that every year, about 3% of bodies. And the death industry is basically resistant to change. Um, there are funeral con conglomerates, but even the small mom, mom and pops are price gouging in many ways. And and they're marking up uh, the funeral costs as much as 500% on caskets and other related costs. And so 
Ricky, this is an area you almost never hear anything about. Like, you think about like how much mm. time we spend about the music industry. We're in the middle of the writer strike, which we'll probably talk about on Thursday, which is really important. It's how we consume content and all that. But like the most important things you do is you live and you die. Those are like very important things yeah. that happen in life. They're some of the most meaningful moments in people's lives. And it seems like we might be getting ripped off for this. Yeah, I think it's probably like analogous to how they say that they upcharge everyone um, during weddings. But we kind of talk about that uh, more culturally versus I mean, I guess when you walk away and you have the bill from a wedding, you can like bitch and moan about it versus if you're dealing with a loved one having died, like the last thing that you're really worried about in the end is that bill. Um, So I suppose maybe that's why we don't investigate it as much. And I also think we just have like a cultural discomfort around talking about death, which I certainly feel. Um, but I'm glad that we're discussing well, it. And I mean, cost of death. Yeah. You know, it sounds, it's almost disrespectful to be like, all right, well, you know, aunt Sally passed away. Let's, ne- you know, let's negotiate like a, a yeah. really like cost effective funeral is just, it seems like really disrespectful to do it. And I yeah. think funeral homes might be taking advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, markups on caskets up to upwards of 500%. Um, I think there's also just a general question about embalming and which is obviously a very elaborate process that was originally intended to help like transport bodies back in the day before air travel and like across potentially across the country if someone wanted to be buried where they grew up or something like that. But today is just done routinely regardless. Um, and you know, I, I I do feel like there is that sense that you need to technically do it. And I, I don't know mm. if you're just putting someone in the ground in, in relatively short order, that doesn't really seem as necessary as they claim it is. But um, mm-hmm. certainly there's a, a business that sprung up around it. Um, and Modern MBA did a an interesting video that kind of breaks down what's going on. But for funeral homes and cemeteries, death is their business. The more people die, the more funerals they conduct, the more bodies they bury, and the more money that they make. The death industry is not one that demands innovation or gets a lot of attention in the first place. Funeral homes and cemeteries are known as stable, recession-proof, defensive businesses that make good money rain or shine. But they've also picked up a poor reputation as an opaque and predatory business that exploits grief for maximum profit through price gouging, confusing billing, and upselling to emotionally vulnerable individuals and grieving families. Funeral directors are infamous for manipulating information like saying embalming is required by law, or to buy a $6,000 luxury high-gloss mahogany wood white velvet interior casket so that the dead can lie more comfortably. Yeah, and what's what's fascinating about this data is actually cremation is more common. So, you know, something around the order of 57% mm-hmm. of Americans in 2021 opted for cremation versus 36% in burial. But those are not the only two options. You know, one one question that people have about just the way we treat the dead in this country right now is just what it's doing to the planet. And traditional burial puts an estimated 1.6 million tons of reinforced concrete and 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde, uh, which is what's used for embalming, and it's a, a probable carcinogen. And we put that into the earth every year for the dead. Uh, cremation generates an estimated 534 pounds of carbon dioxide per year per person. 
And when you, you know, you ask people, you know, whether they know that data or not, a lot of people, something on the order of 60% are interested in exploring green funeral alternatives. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we can go through what some of those are. I would imagine we're going to start to see more of that, more people opting for different ways of burying the dead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are quite a lot of, it's a, it's a burgeoning industry, which I don't know if that will necessarily be cheaper if you want to be put in like a coral reef or an ice urn or purified by mushrooms. But I suppose wanting to go down a more natural route is something um, a lot of people feel. There's also the um, just like straight up burying someone option, which mm-hmm. has been on the uptick. It's now 10% total, which is called a natural burial, which doesn't involve the whole embalming process, but still costs 2000 to $3,000 and requires a permit, which but much I less get. Yeah. yeah, much less, but that's still kind of expensive. Um, I get the need mm-hmm. for the permit. Like, I, I don't think that we should just be like willy-nilly burying bodies everywhere, but it does feel a little bit bureaucratic. And I, I you know if you, if you want to be kind of off the grid, I, I, I respect that option. I think that's the most practical, um, of all, but still, still very expensive somehow. I don't know. That kind of blows my mind, but I mean, I'm curious. You be able to just, do you need a permit? Like why should somebody need a permit to, to bury a body in their own, in their own backyard? Let's say if you have a big yard. I guess like you just want to know that somebody I died, but that's different. Yeah. Like you should register that the person passed away or whatever, but why not? Why shouldn't you just be able to just, you know, Yellowstone style, just, you know, dig a hole and I mean, you need to like make sure it's deep enough and stuff. I don't know. I'm like, I might, I might not be a pure libertarian on this standpoint. I do think that there's, there's got to be some sort of like okay, like we're aware that there is a body here situation. I mean, like what if you buy property and someone didn't get a permit and then you you build the like foundation for a house and you're just like digging up a, a half rotted body? I, that's, I mean, I think we should know where it is. But here's a question yeah, for you I in terms know. of well, regulation. Just, let's just put that in the column, by the way, of where I'm more libertarian than you. I'm going to keep track okay. of this. Robbie, all of your libertarian aspects are like the least pleasant of them it's like bodies buried everywhere I'm needles all over the street that we were handing out to Look, people that's that where, we just that's allowed where it's against. most important to be people, consistent that's where it's most important to be consistent you yeah. will never live down the public definition you were gonna ask one. me a question by the way i was gonna ask we're, you a you question. were gonna ask me something okay the ftc in the 1970s implemented the funeral rule which requires that um, people get an accurate and itemized list of prices. And they recently found that 19% of funeral homes are not actually doing that. Um, I'm curious, is that government le- legislation that you're in favor of requiring that sort of transparency? I generally like transparency laws. Uh, yeah, I, 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 the devil's in the details of this. I think like sometimes like as long as it's not so onerous, like the way that you have to report said things, et cetera, but it sounds like it's not onerous. If 20% aren't even complying, then that's no good. But I do think I do think it's helpful to have an itemized list. It reminds me of a lot of debates around healthcare that we have, which is like whenever, whenever there is a really fraught circumstance, so surgery and healthcare is a good example in the case of somebody dying and where it's like where people are going to be least likely to ask for clarification on price, it's helpful for people to disclose that. Why? What do you think? Is that a good use of the government? I think that's, yeah, I don't know. That's pretty harmless to me. I think I'm, I'm, I think the transparency on that front is probably, um, pretty fair. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, and these I'm are, these are small, 
these are small companies. You know, something close to ninety percent of funeral homes are owned by. Uh, owned privately by families or individuals, although there are some big companies in the space now. There's Service Corporation International, which is the largest funeral services provider in North America with over 1,500 funeral homes and 500 cemeteries in its portfolio, accounting for roughly 16% of the market share. So 90% of homes might be families or individual, but the market share, 16%, is owned by just one company. So, um, and as they've scaled, they have not lowered prices, which is what you would imagine a scaled company would lower mm-hmm. prices because things get cheaper, economies of scale. Uh, their prices average 47 to 72% higher than those of its competitors. And that's from data from 2017. So this, like anything else, you know, private equity, big business are entering this space. It's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily seem to be making anything better for consumers. So, Ravi, how how would you like to be treated <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. in death? What is your preference here? It's, My it preference? must be something weird. I, I'm going to guess it's one of the weird natural ones, like the coral reef or something. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I I need to learn more about the natural ones. I think, uh, in general, I, I tend to believe that... I want to be as in harmony with the earth as possible, so I would I would opt for a natural one. I there is a there is a practice both in surfing and in Indian culture of spreading ashes in water, uh, and it's more environmentally destructive in Indian culture because you know where my family's from is where the Ganges River is is very polluted with ashes and has all sorts of issues. Uh, but I like the ocean version of that. There's this, there's this tradition in surfing where people form a circle in the ocean and spread the ashes in the middle. So you hold hands like in the ocean and then you spread the ashes in the middle, which I find quite beautiful. Um, it's a really beautiful ceremony. So that's probably what I would do. What about you? I'm still undecided. I haven't really thought about it enough, but I feel like maybe just the the good old natural burial. I don't the whole embalming thing. Absolutely not. I don't. For sure. I don't. We could cryogenically freeze you, so that yeah, in, in the future we could upload your mind into the. Yeah, into the I don't database. want that. See, this is why this is this is where my my religious background makes me be like, you know what? I'd rather just take the gamble and hope that heaven's real than wake up in some hellish dystopian future down the line because I was frozen. So yeah, well, just as a way of history here, for most of American history, people died at home and they were tended to by loved ones. My uh, great grandfather is actually buried in the backyard of the house I spent most of my early childhood in. Um, women in the community prepared the body, men made the casket, and this started to change in the Civil War where death occurred far away. So that's when embalming started to rise. And then like, you know, it's America, capitalists, you know, got a hold of that and made it an industry. Hmm. That reminds me, my my biological family and my dad's adoptive side, which we just talked about him being adopted, they were talking to the dead and doing all bizarro rituals. They were spiritualists, so Lord knows what their their Hmm. practices were, but... Yeah. We'll have to find Apparently out. They kept they kept the bodies at the house for a little too long is what I've heard reported from oh, gross. relatives. So that's fun. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the lost debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town.
Hi, Ricky and Ravi. My name is Sandro Raniolo, and I'm calling from Singapore. I wanted to just make a comment about um, the last uh, the last podcast, which is the one about the uh, foster care and the orphanages in America, and particularly the interview with Dr. Christine um, Canelli. I think I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, she, you know, again, she learned so much from from the entire show and from her interview. Um, but there was one thing that, that sort of irked me about what she said. And, um, you know, she, she said at one point, and I think Ravi, you said the same thing, you agreed that uh, the Catholic Church is a criminal organization. And I just take, you know, I don't want to be the defender of the Catholic Church here because clearly they, they have a lot to, to answer to in this situation. And in fact, they're still not answering to. So I, I agree with a lot of the points that, that you make in the interview. But, but to dismiss 2,000 years of Catholic tradition um, as a, you know, as a criminal organization, I think at the very least warrants a bit of debate. Well, what a lovely voicemail. It's great to have That's listeners nice. all around the world. Um, yeah, I think I, I generally agree that the you know, I don't want to dismiss the culture, and I think that's what what I was uh, grappling with with our guests on that episode is that we both grew up Catholic. I think both of us have a certain reverence for the culture. We don't want the culture to be destroyed. At the same time, and I think this listener would agree, the Catholic Church systematically suppressed and covered up some of the worst crimes that you can ever imagine over a very long period of time. And so... When a an organization does that, that's like it could be semantics or whatever. But I I do think that that and a lot of people are still around, still within the church. You know, um, that to me is why I call it a criminal organization. Like you don't have to read any of the books on it. You just watch Spotlight, where you see that there were they were moving around priests credibly accused of pedophilia, and you know to me that. If, if it weren't an organization that we had so much respect for before and it were just like a company doing that or something, I think we would have a different feeling about it. Yeah, I would just say, had I been in that interview, I would have um, definitely shared this color sentiment and pushing back and saying, characterizing it as a criminal organization almost feels to me as though that, that means that that's somehow baked into the intent of the organization itself. I think that you can have an organization that's liable for crimes, but I I would I also take exception to that label, but I understand where it's coming from. Like the intent of a, a cartel, a Mexican drug cartel, is not to commit murder; it's to make money on drugs. But in the service of making money on drugs, they commit murder, and they also commit money laundering. They commit a lot of other crimes, and so I think like to say that like the intent of the Catholic Church is not to commit pedophilia. I agree; it's not the the intent of the church, like in terms of its mission. But it is the intent of it was the intent of a lot of senior figures in the church to conceal pedophilia, I, you know, and they may have viewed that in surface of protecting the overall mission. Certainly seems to be the case, but that to me doesn't mean because the the intent and the mission aren't the same uh, of those crimes that, that that doesn't give them get them off the hook for me, even as somebody who grew yeah, up Catholic. I would- 
I would, I'm not saying anyone's off the hook, but I would pick a different example than like a drug cartel, maybe say like a pharmaceutical company that's found liable for doing, concealing something does also have a different intent and is not entirely just based on. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would maybe not pick the drug cartel. It's an analogy. analogy, Something in good faith. I'm just, I would, I would pick something in good, like a company that is in good faith intending to, you know, help cure disease. But then there, there is bad stuff going on behind closed doors versus somebody who's a drug cartel. I don't know. I'll take exception to that example. For another day, we'll, uh, we'll, for another day, maybe with you and our listener, uh, our loyal listener, thank you for this voicemail. Maybe another day we'll debate whether there, there is that good faith anymore, which is a question I often have. And it's a complicated organization with many people with many different goals. So I think, you know, when I go back and listen to that that interview, though, the people involved in the diocese in and around Vermont and running that particular orphanage were not in good faith. They were masochists. And to me, that, like, that the fact that that was systematic and widespread around the world, just like the the more, you know, like the more widely known pedophilia was also widespread and also masochistic. You know, that as somebody who's like really loves the church as a whole and the role it played in my community, I struggle with finding a charitable explanation for some of these trends. But that's you know that's for another deb- day, another debate. Um, very sad story. Um, if you're listeners, please send in voicemails if you have thoughts about that too. Our voicemail is 321-200-0570. The Lost Debate is the flagship show from The Branch. Our executive producer is Nick Perone, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, audio editing by Dean Metherell. 